if you're looking at us live, you're looking at Marcus Wilson, and I'm Harry Schrader, and we're glad to be with you today. Uh, people know about what I do at ValleyHoopsInsider.com. We talk about the Missouri Valley Basketball Conference and the Ohio Valley Conference, a little bit of St. Louis University and some high school basketball as well, kind of a magazine format where we uh, try to talk about issues and teams and players and uh, rather than games. We don't, like, cover games, and our guest today is University of Evansville basketball great Marcus Wilson, fourth leading all-time scorer at Evansville, over 2,000 points in his career, played professionally all over the place. And you and I connected a couple of years ago, and I just want to say first, thanks for joining us. I know you're super busy, but thanks for hanging out with us today. Oh, no problem, Harry. I appreciate you having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, before we get to we're going to talk social issues. I, I, I tell people all the time, and I've been posting videos and writing little stories and I've been in Ferguson twice this week and going downtown as soon as you and I uh, get off this uh, interview, um, that I think it's just important for us to dialogue and to hear people and listen to one another and try to get some understanding. And so I want to talk about that in some detail today. But before we get to that specifically, um, you head up a North St. Louis YMCA. Tell us a little bit about your job. And you were just telling me there's some other aspects of your job that are evolving right now. Yeah, so I'm at the Bear YMCA, which is which used to be the Monsanto Family YMCA. Uh, we're in kind of northwest St. Louis on Page. Um, and, you know, I was, we're in an area, what I call an area of opportunity. There's a lot of opportunity to improve, um, but there's a lot of poverty. And, you know, there's crime and there's a lot of good people as well. And I just feel like uh, I had the opportunity to make an impact here. So after uh, I was the staff that I was on at St. Louis University was let go. Um, I came over here. So I've been here four years now and we're going through a two point five million dollar renovation, which uh, I'm really excited about. I had a, a hand and a voice in how we wanted to remodel this. And so, you know, we're building a new uh, really it was to to attack some of the things I think we're going to talk about um, to help uh, the future of youth and this community. And a lot of times people say that, but there's no tangible action other than words. And so what I wanted, I know that education is a big part of that. And so we wanted to attack education at a, at a younger age. So we're starting a new early childhood education center. Stats show that when you start, when you start, when you get that early childhood education before kindergarten, that it increases your opportunity to have success in school. So we're, we, we're opening up a new center from six weeks to two and a half. We already had one from two and a half to five, but we want to start, we wanted to start even younger. So building that out. And then we're also building out a new team tech center, uh, which will have esports, you know, computers, uh, robotics, um, all type of STEM activities, maker spaces, um, and, a, and a sound studio. Uh, so kids can come in and make their music and basically designed it for kids to have a safe space. A lot of kids in this community, we know they like playing basketball. We know they like playing video games. We know they like making music. And so now if we can have all that and some more with some of the STEM and electric, you know, and all those other things, hopefully it will entice them to come here. And then once they're here, we have great mentors and we have a great facility and we have great programs to keep them engaged. So a lot of times in inner city, the, the public schools don't have as many extracurricular activities as the suburban schools uh, with the STEM and the robotics. And so that's, that's the second part of the education is not only getting the kids in a safe space, but educating them and giving them the skills to be prepared for college and beyond. Spectacular. 
uh, what people may or may not know, you also have a, a, a podcast out there where you're talking to people about issues like this, issues of life. I know just recently you were talking with Coach Licklider there at, at Evansville. Um, where can they find that, that podcast? I want them to be able to follow you online. So you can go uh, – the majority of my views are on YouTube. So it's not just a podcast. It's a vlog or a webcast, whatever you want to call it. So we record it just like this uh, and put it on YouTube. So it's called The Details of Life. Uh, with Marcus Wilson, you search it on YouTube. It's actually getting enough hits now to where when you search it, it's one of the top few. <laughs> details of I know life. that journey, brother. I don't, yeah. I don't try to get anybody to know I'm, I'm, I exist, you know. Exactly. And so, and then we're also on pretty much all major podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, um, all of those. So if you just search Details of Life with Marcus Wilson on any of those, uh, you'll be able to find us. Yeah, it's a good watch, a good listen. And you've been broadcasting games for the Missouri Valley as well, doing some uh, commentating mostly at Evansville, but but for the Valley on ESPN. And uh, tell our watchers, our viewers right now, what a CBG is. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to where one day I told them I thought this kid was a CBG, a certified bucket getter. And the, the, the slogan that actually comes from when I was coaching at SLU Calvert Chaney, who was one of the original CBGs, we were, <laughs> on the we were on the staff together. And when we would scout or when we'd be looking at recruits and if we saw a kid who could just flat out score, you know, we'd be like, man, that kid's a CBG. He's certified. He's a certified bucket getter. And I just took that with me and said it in front of the, uh, the ESPN uh, production team at, at Evansville. And they were like, hey, let's start doing that at the end of each game. You can name your CBG, which is, you know, equivalent to player of the game or, or whatnot. And so then we just started coming up with Marcus Wilson, CBG, certified bucket getter of the game. And we have fun with it. And obviously, the whoever the young uh, player is who gets named that, you know, we tweet we tweet him. And he retweets it to his family. And so it's it's, it's fun. But, uh, yeah, I think that I think that I was somewhat of a CBG. So oh, I always no doubt. When I see one. Yeah. And so that's why we uh, called it the CBG certified bucket getter. Yeah, I watched you play a lot when you were playing, announced a number of your games here at Arch Madness, and you absolutely were a CBG, no question. <laughs> hey, uh, so I, I would love to just sit and talk Missouri Valley basketball, but but we have bigger fish to fry this afternoon. And and, uh, I, and I want to – I told somebody, I said, I'm going to have Marcus Wilson on today, and I'm, and I'm going to ask him stupid white guy questions. What I mean is that sometimes, you know, we, we just talk past one another and we don't understand even – language sometimes that, that, that people use. And, and so um, hopefully, you know, I was with, uh, I was at Ferguson in, in Ferguson a couple days ago at one of the uh, prayer vigils and, and I spent some time with one of the local pastors there and, and we were just talking back and forth and I was gleaning and learning and understanding, you know, what, what he had to say. Um, but I want to ask you personally, Marcus, when George Floyd is killed just a little over a week ago, I want to know your immediate initial reaction, Marcus Wilson's personal immediate response. Um, so my initial reaction was one of hurt and was, I think what people need to realize is uh, this was just one of many hurts. I think the wound was more raw because we had just saw Ahmaud Arbery be killed in the street. And then if you recall, right, the two days before George Floyd was the Amy Cooper incident where she called on this Harvard grad who was bird, bird watching, saying, you know, and dramatized it, saying that her life was threatened. And so yeah, because her those, dog wasn't on a leash. Exactly. Yeah. And so 
you know, those are one of those things where some people are like, that wasn't a big deal, but we know that sometimes when the police get called, consequences like what happened with George Floyd occurs. And so that call was devastating to me as well. So then when George mm -hmm. Floyd happened, these things happening back to back, it was just really, it was just hard to process. It was really hurtful. I mean, I think for me, the hardest part about it was, this was the second time in three weeks that my 13 year old son watching the news had to say, dad, why did they kill that black dude in the middle of the street like that? Like, and I'm supposed to answer that question. I'm not prepared to answer that question. You know, um, I had to answer that question, but I felt like I was taking away his innocence to have to explain to him that sometimes racism exists in this world. And with him being a young black kid, that applies to him, right? And so we had to have a talk about, hey, you know, you don't get to run through neighbor's yards and you don't get to run through neighbor's yards playing water guns, right? I can't risk you, I can't risk a neighbor seeing a young black kid run through the yard with a toy gun in his hand, which kids should be allowed to do, but I can't risk someone calling the police on him and then they show up and accidentally think that they saw a real gun. So these are things, these are conversations that came out of that. Um, and just the hurt of just seeing, um, you know, just seeing a man die in the streets. And it was just, you know, it's hard because although I didn't know him personally, when I see him, he's a 6'4", former, former basketball player. And so you wonder, could that be me one day? You know, you see yourself in that. And I think that just magnifies the hurt. I am so sorry, you know, for the, the, the pain and the extra level of things that you have to carry. I, it just well, saddens thing, me, right? You know, it, it, it breaks my heart that, that, like, we don't know each other well, but I really enjoy you. And I think this, here's a guy that I consider kind of a friend. And there's this extra level of pain and struggle and layers of difficulty because of those conversations you have to have with your, your son, like you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, and one thing I always try to tell people, um, especially white people, is these stories are not, sometimes people walk away feeling guilty. I'm not trying to place blame. Sure. I'm not trying to place guilt. What I'm trying to do is tell you my honest truth and my story. So hopefully you can empathize. And even if you don't completely agree, when we start to learn how to empathize with each other, you can understand. And understanding brings us closer to where we can have a conversation. So we're not talking at each other. We're talking with each other, right? And so I'm trying to make sure that people understand some of these things of the feelings of why people feel how they feel. And the one thing that has kind of taught me is this is, and I've been explaining this to people this entire week is, a lot of times when we have these conversations, people are like, Marcus, uh, especially my white friends, like, I want to hear your story. And I say, well, oh, that's fine and dandy. Thank you for the respect that you're giving me for that. But I need to hear your story just mm -hmm. as much or even more. And the reason why is what we've seen, well, what I've seen over the past week is the power of white people to be able to change the how people see racism. Right. So right now, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd has happened and it's really bubbled up something in America. I've never seen this many people wanting to come to the table and march and protest together and just speak and have people say, I, I recognize my implicit biases. I want to learn more. I've never seen this much happen. I agree. Um, but a lot of that has been driven by the white population. Mm. Black people have been seeing images like this happen for years, for 
This is the second time we watched a black man be killed in the street saying, I can't breathe. Eric Gardner happened, what, I think in 2014, right? Mm -hmm. We saw that, we felt the same hurt then as we feel for George Floyd. The same hurt when we saw Tamir Rice. The same hurt when we heard about Tray Trayvon Martin. The same hurt when we hear a lot of these names. It's just something that has happened recently. And I think it was the, the how quickly Ahmaud Arbery, Amy Cooper, George Floyd happened to where it, got, it, it hit people in a different way and they felt it differently. Mm. Um, but I say like, it's important for white people to talk as well because I've seen a shift even in the slogan, Black Lives Matter. I know a month ago, it I'm felt with you. I was so gonna political. ask you about this. Go ahead. Yeah. It felt so political, right? It right. felt almost a negative term to some people, not all. Don't get me wrong. Uh, a lot of people knew the origin of it. But um, now all of a sudden you see a lot of white people hashtag Black Lives Matter. And now it's like, okay, we can say Black Lives Matter and it means what we wanted it to mean all along, right? right. But who drove that culture? The majority of the people, white people did that, right? Yes. And so as much as it's important for me to speak my truth, it's important for white people to realize the power that they have in being able to change racism. It's hard for the people oppressed to change the culture. The people who are a part of the oppression can change it much quicker. And that, that was, I was going to talk about that and we'll get back to that in a minute. I, I was going to ask okay. you, it seems to me like the, the tipping point for Black yes. Lives Matter, it like we, it's, it's tipped over. Like it, it yes. went past, you know, 50% or whatever. Um, like I put out a little video thing the other day and I just said, listen, when I say that Black Lives Matter, and I believe Black Lives Matter, immediately some of you have pushed me into a category. Some of you have pushed me into a category of he's way off to blah, blah, blah. And some of you have pushed me into a category like I'm a hero. Neither right. of those things are true. I'm just right. stating a fact. And, exactly. And, uh, and so, you know, just the pushback has lessened, which I'm, I'm really grateful for. Were you surprised, Marcus, um, by the level of the, the, the riot part, the vandalism part that has taken place the last couple of days? I was, I wouldn't say I was surprised. Um, I, I definitely don't agree with it. I, um, protesting, 1,000%. Being angry, 1,000%. Um, but I think what I want to say about that is I understood that I understood the anger, um, how people express their anger. I didn't always agree with. I think what I what I've been talking about on the education side of that is people say, well, why is that happening? I think that oftentimes or where you see where we've been at this table before where we say, let's try to make a change. And then we try to make a change. And then six months later or 12 months later, we're right back in the same situation seeing another person possibly be killed or seeing racial injustice of some kind. And so I think what you saw was the same amount of emotion that hit a lot of white people in America to say, hey, I want to come to the table and talk. That it took a lot to get that to happen. This has been going on for years and it took Ahmaud Arbery, it took George Floyd. That same amount that it took that much affected some black people to say, you know what? You don't listen to me when I've tried to talk anyway. So let my voice be heard through this. Like, you're gonna see how mad I am. And instead of vocalizing and coming to the table and talking, that was the expression of it. Is it right? No. And I think what I really have had a hard time with and have a problem with is we did a neighborhood cleanup the other day. So I just, you know, a lot of people are posting on social media and 
they're trying to let people know they want to help in that way. But I wanted to do something tangible. And so one day after the riots in St. Louis and the looting in St. Louis, our team with the YMCA went and got some other people and went down to some of the sites and cleaned up and picked up the glass and swept up the glass and swept up some of the debris and everything. And being there, uh, we were over on Grand and MLK. There was, a, I think, a city gear that was looted, a family dollar that was burned down. And right out in front of the city gear, I think there was a GameStop. And there was this young black dude, probably about 30 years old. And he was on the phone with his insurance company. He was on the phone with his friends. And he was just devastated. It's like, I can't believe they would do this to me. Like, I'm from here. No, 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 no. And you could just hear the hurt in his voice. Mm. And then we go across the street and we're trying to pick up stuff in front of the family dollar that's still up in flames. And I'm in flames with smoke in there. Just put the flames out. And this lady comes around the corner and she's like, you know, like, this is where I came to get my groceries. I don't have great transportation. I don't know what I'm going to do now. And so that's what re it really hurt me to know that people were expressing their anger, which in a way they probably shouldn't be doing it anyway, was hurting the same people yeah. that, like them. And so that's where I'm, I'm, I'm adamantly against that. You know, you can't tear down your own neighborhood. Although it does get the attention of the media, Yep. which is what you sometimes want. It puts the attention and starts putting pressure on lawmakers to make a change. Tearing up your neighbor's business, a 30-year-old black guy who has been saving up money, trying to do things right, have his own business, and to see that up in flames, that, that hurts. And I, that's why I don't, I don't like to see that. But to say I was surprised, no, because I know this is something that's been bubbling up in America uh, a long time. And you just saw the expression of that. And I think Dr. King said that riots or something where the language of people that aren't heard, you know, and, and I think going back to what you said, if, okay, we've tried to come to the table, we've, we've said there's going to be police reform or whatever it might be. Um, and, and yet here we are. And yep. so sometimes you, you become hopeless. So we react beyond what maybe we should. Um, I was telling my wife, one thing I said about that was we all, almost all of us, most men, I can't probably tell our young boys if, Somebody messes with you in school, first thing I want you to do is go tell the teacher. Tell them that so-and-so is picking on you. After that, if that teacher doesn't listen, you might want to go to the principal and say, this is what's happening. Your kid keeps coming home crying because they're getting picked on. Eventually, you're probably going to tell your kid, well, punch them in the nose then next time. That's exactly what happened here. You went and said, hey, this is what's happening. So-and-so was killed. We feel like, it's, uh, like, like we're not getting you know, the justice. Another person was killed. Another person, multiple, multiple times. Let's try to take it to court. So-and-so wasn't convicted for this murder. Well, let's take it to this authority. So-and-so wasn't held accountable for that murder. Eventually, people are going to try to punch you in the nose, so to speak. And, yeah. that's, and that's what's happening. Listen, I had that exact experience with my, my oldest son now. I, I told him all the steps to take, and finally he decked somebody at school one day. <laughs> Yeah. And the principal called me in and I said, listen, police your playground or I'm going to have him do it again. I don't care. I'm not going to have my son beat up. And that's a microscopic version of what you're seeing in these riots, right? Yeah. You're, you're seeing people who probably tried to talk to people and have these forums and try to take uh, someone to court for doing them wrong. And then multiple, multiple times you saw justice not be delivered. So they said, you know what? Well, this is what I'm going to do because trying to do it the right way didn't help. We talked about Black Lives Matter. For people that are watching this right now on Facebook Live or seeing it later on YouTube, and I'll re-put it out there, um, why is that an important phrase? What I mean is you saw it, I saw it, uh, 
you know, a number of years ago when that became a thing, you know, what I mean is it became a phrase, it became a yeah. hashtag or whatever. And people, white people mostly, reacted to, well, wait a minute, all lives matter. What, what about the blue lives, right? I mean, and, and you can understand that reaction too. I, you know, I, I can understand it. Tell me why it matters that we say Black Lives Matter and believe it. Well, I think it's just a matter of uh, announce, like sh recognizing that someone is there um, and giving them uh, assurance that they're valued, their life is valued. So of course, all lives matter. I mean, of course, like this is not, this is anyone who says black lives matter, at least the people that I know, I, there's always gonna be extremists on each end, right? Sure. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. There's gonna be extreme people on the black lives matter. There's gonna be extreme people over here that are racist white people. Most of those people you're probably not gonna reach anyway. So let them be where they're at. The majority of us need to understand that the reason why a lot of people say black lives matter and black lives matter is important is because what I just referenced to last time is that oftentimes we've seen black people get killed. In, and in this context, we're talking about by police and no convictions come about that. And so you start to wonder, does my life matter when people are allowed to kill people that look like me? Okay, let me interrupt. Does, does your life matter to people of power? Yes. I mean, that's really the thing, because then, because the retort constantly comes back, well, all this black on black crime, how come black lives don't matter then? And I'm going to touch on that as well. But, you know, but, okay. but, but speaking to people in, in, in authority or in power, ha they have to be reminded that some people aren't less than others. Is yeah. Where I, that goes to it in my own mind. And it matters enough to hold someone accountable when they take a life. When there is black on black crime, and I'm gonna talk about that, but even with that, when they find the black person who killed the other black person, they generally go to jail. Yeah. Right? We're talking about the people that, you know, the Black Lives Matter slogan came from people were being killed, black people were being killed, and there was no accountability. So I need you to say that my life matters and mean it. Um, and to talk about black on black crime, anybody who's followed me on Facebook knows that I talk about this stuff all the time. It's uncomfortable conversations but I learned from sports, everything that I've learned in business, I've learned in sports. And sometimes you have to get, you become really good at something being, uh, learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, mm. getting up and running sprints, running miles to get in shape, lifting weights, that's uncomfortable, but it, it, it produces something better in the end. And so I don't, I'm not that uncomfortable having these conversations. I always say there's two things going on in America simultaneously. There's systematic racism, which I'll explain some examples because a lot of times, People say that, and they're like, what do you mean? There's systematic racism, and there's lack of accountability in black neighborhoods. Those two things are happening simultaneously. Yeah, it's what not one or the other. That's, that's so important. People want yeah, to say, it's not well, one or the other. what about this? Well, that doesn't discount the other. It's not one or the other. Sometimes we're having a conversation about this one topic, about systematic racism, and it may not be the time to talk about this over here. And then other times, and I do it all the time here at my YMCA. There's all type of forums. There's all type of nonprofits. What we just talked about, the renovation here, is going to address some of the things with Black-on-Black -black crime here. And as we're talking about Black-on-Black -black crime here, and when we started talking about the $2.5 million renovation and the education, it wasn't time to talk about systematic racism. There's a time for each, and then there's a time for both. And I recognize that there is issues in both. And so when I say systematic racism, 
what I mean by that is a couple things. Like I give people the example of redlining. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably need to educate yourself even more, but for anybody out there listening, but redlining was a, a practice where you drew up parts of neighborhoods where basically black people had to stay. And the Fair Housing Act of 1968 basically put into a law that before 1968, only 2% of loans were given to black people for, to own homes. In 1968, that, you know, they, uh, there was a law passed where you couldn't discriminate on that anymore. It's still happening, but they passed the law. And so what I say about that is, if that happened in 1968, most black people didn't have generational wealth at that time. They didn't have great credit. So they, even though the law was passed, they still couldn't go get loans for the most part. So me being born in 1977, or people around my age, is really the first generation that really had fair access to own a home. And the reason that's important is we all know that if you don't own something, you don't, if you don't own something, you don't put your investment to it, you don't value it as much. It's the same, same way why most of us blue collar parents say, you know what, when my kid wants a car, I'm going to make him get a job at McDonald's and save up some money instead of just buying it and giving it to him. Because once he saved up his own money and bought it, he's going to wash it. He's going to clean it. He's going to take care of it because he knows how hard it, how, mm -hmm. how much it took to earn it. Considering that most black people were discriminated against to be able to own land, own homes, you don't place as much value on property. And because we've never owned it, not we, but generally, historically speaking, right? This has been done systematically through racism, right? The denial, even as early, even as early as a few years ago, there was a study in Atlanta that said there were, uh, it was more likely for banks to give um, poor white people loans versus middle-class black people homes. And so if you can't own and you can't, get an investment into America, it's going to be much easier for you to tear down this man's building because you don't, you've never owned it. You probably feel some anger that you haven't been given a fair opportunity to earn your own. And so that's one part of systematic racism. Another thing is education. My, my, my crux of this is just trying to make sure we can educate our youth so they can graduate college and they can have a better opportunity to earn a living to take care of their family. I think property taxes, funding, schooling is another part of systematic racism. Because if you've already created these red line districts, there's houses in the St. Louis community, North St. Louis where I work, that are worth a dollar. That are worth, they sell them for a dollar. They sell them for $20,000, $40,000, maybe $80,000. Homes out in Olivet and Ladue and Creve Coeur are 400, 500, $800,000, a million dollars. So if we're taking the property taxes from houses that aren't worth much and funding the schools, you see why people are getting a subpar education and people in suburbs are getting a much better education. That's systematic racism. We can change that, we just have not. And so now you have people who are getting subpar educations and now with a subpar education, you can't get a job to earn as much money. And studies show whether it's in America, whether you're black, whether you're white, India, China, if you have poverty and you have low education, that's what produces crime. Mm -hmm. It's not skin color. It's, it's if you're if, if you right now, I mean, maybe you wouldn't because but if you most parents always say I would I would never commit a crime. But if you're at home and your child doesn't have something to eat multiple days in a row, most people are going to say I'm going to do what it takes to feed my family, even if I got to break a law or two, I'm not going to sit here and watch my child starve. 
So if we know that we've been putting people in a position where they can't get the high quality education they deserve to earn the money to be able to live legally, that's systematic racism in my opinion. And so those things can change. To go on black on black crime, 1000% correct. We don't hold each other accountable enough on that. We don't, you know, we don't tell on the man down the street when we know he committed a crime. This no snitching thing has gone way too far. Mm. Um, you know, and so these are things that I'm working on in my community and others, not just me. Um, oftentimes white people don't think these conversations are, ha are happening because oftentimes they aren't being invited to the table for those conversations. Because quite frankly, it doesn't really concern you at that point. We, we need to talk to you about systematic racism. We're talking to our own community and our own people about black on black crime. And obviously it's not working enough because there's too much of it. But to think that black people don't, most black people, uh, again, there's extremes. There's extremes that don't care. But I would say the majority of black people to think that we don't know that there's, a, there's problems going on in our own community. I tell people all the time, when, we walk, when you drive down the street in North St. Louis, you see trash on the street. Some of that is because there's not as many trash pickups. Some of that is because we're throwing trash out the, out the, out the window of our car. White people aren't driving through North St. Louis littering. They're not even coming to North St. Louis. That's us. That's right. us. We're, we're hurting our own property value by littering in our own neighborhoods. I have these conversations with people, Harry. I have these conversations. Other leaders in our community have these conversations with people about going to vote. It's not, we're not seeing the results we want to see yet, but I do want to make it clear that there's black on black, there's black on black, and there's black on black crime, and there's a need for more accountability amongst us to make sure that we are coming home from work when possible to uh, check our child's homework, show up to PTA meetings, right? Sometimes it's a single mom and she's working two jobs, she just can't. Um, but for the ones that can, to come home and make sure that you're checking your kid's homework showing up to PDA meetings, telling the, man, telling the young man down the street, don't behave like that. Those things are happening and that we need more accountability. That doesn't take away from systematic racism, systemic racism and you know, and so there's two things going on and that's how I see that. It's amazing. Uh, I can't keep you forever, obviously. You, I know you got a million other things and, uh, to get to. Um, in, in, a, in a sentence or two, um, I don't mean it has to be only one or two sentences, but I'm thinking like a, a bullet points. Um, what do you think most folks that look like me don't understand about what's going on in the African-American community? Wow, that's a, that's a good one. I would say that, um, like even where I work, it's a layer, uh, the area I serve here in North St. Louis, the average household income is $27,000 per household versus the state average of about 53,000. So there's a lot of people living in poverty. Um, there, is, there are a lot of awesome people. I've been working at this YMCA for four years and the people that come through these doors are ultra respectful. Uh, they say, you know, they speak to each other. I, the point I'm getting at is 95% of the people that I come across in this community, and it's a poor, hard, it's a poor community, it's, a, it's hard, to live here and you have the right to be angry and frustrated, 95% of the people are trying to do better and they're trying to live a good life. That 5% is a bad 5%. They're in gangs, they are looting, they are doing things that dominate the attention of the news. And you hear that voice a lot louder 
than you hear of the good people just living a day-to-day life, right? And so um, I think that would be one thing is that there's a lot of good people that are just trying to do the same thing you're trying to do. Um, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's the number. I hear people think that over here, there's, you know, there's a lot of bad black people. It's, it's not the case, you know? Um, I think that another thing that I, I would say is children end up making mistakes in part because of um, what they've been taught or what they haven't been taught. And so I, I tell people a lot of times you'll see a 17, 18 year old kid in school and I've gotten to this argument before and they're like, or he drops out of school and they're like, this is the land of the free. You can, you can go to school for free. You can get on the internet and learn. Well, a lot of people don't have the extra money to get internet here um, in, in these situations. But when you put people in a situation where they have to survive and there's a single mom who's working two jobs, when the child gets home from school at, tw- at 12 years old and other kids come knock on the door and they say, hey, you wanna come, come out and play? For some reason, we think that this 12 year old black kid is gonna say, no, hey guys, I gotta do my homework for three I'm hours. I'm going to college someday. I can't, yeah, I can't go play. Right. That's about 1% of kids, black or white. Mm-hmm. If, the, if your friend asks you to come over and there's not a parent at home, you're gonna go out and play. I was in college and I, and I was 20 something years old and I knew I had a test on Monday. And if my friend said, hey, you wanna go out Saturday night? It was hard to say no to that. And so we put too much responsibility on these kids who are living in uh, single parent homes to make the right decision at 12, 13, 14 years old. Then what happens is they do go outside and play and then they get caught up in some activities and around people that they shouldn't. And so I think keeping, uh, that's why I think it's so important to have fair justice systems because you know as we see sometimes, we see stats show that black people get uh, harsher penalties for the same crimes. And so if we're breaking up families, if people are committing crimes, they need to go to jail, white or black. But you can't, we gotta stop where black people are being held more accountable for the same crimes and breaking up families. Because when you break up those families, now you got single parents at home working multiple jobs and now kids are being left without a mentor, without a mom, without a father to, t- to tell them, no, you can't go outside until you finish your homework. Most of our parents said that, right? Or you can go play, just be back home at six and then we're gonna do your homework before you go to bed. If you don't have that parent in the household doing that, then you get, and then what I see all the time is, it doesn't, you don't see it right away. 12, 12 years old, not that bad. 13 years old, you start to fall a little bit behind. 14 years old, now all of a sudden you're even more behind. Now you're in high school and you're a couple grade levels behind math and reading. And what do kids do when they get called on? Any teacher or educator out there can vouch for this. What do kids do when they don't know? They either shut down or they act out and they become class clowns. And then what happens is when you're a black kid who, instead of just saying, I don't know, now you feel embarrassed and you either just shut down, which makes it worse, or you act out whether through negative behavior or being a class clown, that now you get suspended. Now that, you see where that goes, yeah, right? And it all absolutely. started with breaking up the family. And so I think, you know, having um, stronger families and having equal punishments among races uh, to make sure that we're uh, developing the family, that would be another thing that I, I would hope that uh, people would understand. Listen, we need to do this again. Here's my final question, though. I need to let you go. Um, I'm going to flip it back to sports. We've seen a lot of coaches, 
lot of athletic directors, a lot of professional athletes and so forth, uh, stand up and speak out in this uh, hour. And, and more than I think I ever remember, and, 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 and I want to say in thoughtful ways, you know, and just the controversy of the last two days about Drew Brees and, you know, the anthem and all that. And, um, but I do think that athletes, entertainers, all those kinds of people, but I think in particular athletes, because young people and uh, somehow see a Marcus Wilson, they go, man, he's just not good at acting like he's in love with a girl. He showed a skill, a hard work to be able to bounce that ball, put it in the hoop, you know, and so forth. Uh, LeBron's been speaking out and people admire his work ethic. And so there's a credibility and a, gra uh, a gravitas, as they say, that, that maybe uh, a LeBron James can have, or even Drew Brees. I mean, you know, for setting aside the controversy of what he said and then apologized and all that. Do you think it's important for coaches and in particular white coaches, Conzo Martin spoke out very, you know, boldly, you know, at, at Mizzou. Do you, how important do you think it is for like coaches in particular and particularly white coaches to be speaking out in this hour? 100% important. And for me, everybody might have a different reason as to why they think they should. But for me, the facts of the matter is you look at the NFL, you look at, uh, you look at basketball, college basketball, NBA, 70% of those athletes are African-American. And so if you're bringing 70% and, and we know how much money college football generates, we know how much money the NFL and NBA generates. And so if we, we know that these coaches are recruiting these African-American kids to their program and making money, you need to be able to empathize with their pain and be able to empathize when these things are going wrong and stand up and not be silent because you're not silent when you want to go to their home and recruit their parents. I mean, recruit them and get them to come to your school to help you win games. What's more important, winning games or making sure this kid has a fair shot at life and that he's going to be treated uh, with equity when he graduates. And these coaches have an opportunity to affect that because like you said, in sports, it's not that I'm uh, different than another black person. I just, and LeBron James, it's just, we have a bigger platform. And so what are you doing with your platform? Coaches, um, CEOs as well, but we're talking about coaches. When you have that platform, people listen to you. You know, Nick Saban, when he talks, and out, people in Alabama listen, Yeah. right? And so if he can say something that will make someone in Alabama say, hmm, I never thought about it that way. And if Nick Saban is thinking that way, well, maybe I should try. If that just happens with 10% of the people that heard Nick Saban talk, imagine the change that that could occur, that could occur from that, because now that those 10% has changed, now they can start changing their own little circle through individual conversations when you go out to dinner, when you have when you're playing, you know, uh, having barbecues in the backyard and have these conversations. So I think they have a platform and considering the base, I think they have a responsibility um, to speak up considering the, the, the high majority of African-Americans that are usually on, on their teams. If you're just scrolling by on Facebook, that's Marcus Wilson. I'm Harry Schrader. He is a, he was just a spectacular basketball player at Evansville. He was on the YMCA and there in the North, in North St. Louis, the Bear YMCA, right? B-A-Y-E-R. They're your new kind of sponsor. Bear YMCA, yep. And, uh, and, and, and tell people again where they can see your YouTube channel, podcast, et cetera, the name of it. 
It's called Details of Life with Marcus Wilson. Uh, you can search that on almost any platform. Most people watch it on YouTube because it's a video conversation just like this one, but it is also on all podcasts, not all, but the majority of major podcast platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, and others like that. So we usually bring, I usually bring on uh, retired NBA players. We've had on Larry Hughes, where uh, Damon Stoudemire is coming on in a couple episodes and try to bring on coaches and we talk about not just X's and O's, but talk about life, talk about how they build a culture, um, talk about their experiences and, and things like that. So uh, hopefully you guys can tune into that. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much. We have to do this again. I've got like 58 more questions, but we just, I got to let you go. The, uh, Anytime. I'm trying to learn, brother. I'm just trying to learn, you know, because uh, it, it's so critical for us to, somebody said the other day, I heard somebody say uh, something about in the midst of all this, it was an African-American man saying, uh, man, I, I've just started thinking about the uh, Native American and yeah. and what they're going through. And he said, man, I started thinking, da, 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 what, the ripple effect of if we start to pay attention to the other person, yeah, we can, we can change everything. Well, you know? I appreciate you trying to learn and all the people out there. I've had more, honestly, I've had, I actually got a text about this today from a colleague, said, Marcus, have you been getting a lot of texts from your white friends saying, how are yeah. you doing? Yeah. And I'm like, yes. And so... I think I see a lot of people trying and I just want to, for the people that are trying and the people that want to learn, I think you, you, a lot of people are saying, what can I do? This is the start, recognizing that there needs to be change. You can't change if you don't recognize it needs to be changed. And then B, we might not all be able to change the world with one voice, but if you can around you and everybody does that, I think that's where we'll start to see those gaps close. Um, and we can, you know, have better conversations interracially and just across all demographic lines. Appreciate it. Bless you. Do good there in the YMCA. What people don't know about you is this is really what you do. Like you and I kind of shared a basketball player for a while. I was announcing his games and you've been mentoring him. And, and, and he's, a, he's a guy with a good dad. What I mean is sometimes we think mentors, no parents. That, that guy's got a, a great father and yet you've been investing in him. And so I, I'm watching you do it at a distance. Like, you know, you and I don't interact a ton, but I know your influence on somebody else that I was announcing their games and knowing how you were mentoring him. And this is, you're the real deal. You're not just a good, you don't just don't talk good. You know, you're, you're the real deal. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me on here. Marcus, God bless. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. All righty. You've been listening and watching Marcus Wilson and me. I'm Harry Schrader right here live on Facebook. We'll Get it all taped out there as well and, and put it out in another product as well. So you all have a great day.